Would you turn with me to two passages of Scripture this morning? Would you turn to the passage I read a few minutes ago in Numbers chapter 21? And so the beginning of your Bible in the Old Testament, Numbers 21. And then in John chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take one of the black Bibles that are in front of you in one of the chairs. We'd like for you to have that Bible and put your name in it, make it your own, and and read it. And I hope it'll be a blessing here at church, but also with you as you seek to explore the things of God and study the Word of God. I want to remind you that this passage that we're going to now be in, and that's in John chapter 3 is our focus, but I want to set us up in Numbers chapter 21. We have a conversation between a very religious man named Nicodemus who has come to Jesus by night and has said to Jesus, I know that you are a special man from God because no one does the things that you do unless they're from God and Jesus will not be flattered in any way. He sees right through Nicodemus, and he knows that Nicodemus is lost. He does not get it, and he says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. He will never enter into the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus is quite confused, and Jesus goes about to explain to him, this is none other than what was promised in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit would come upon and do bring life spiritually from the dead. The kind of change that we pray for will happen in our children like Natalie Gage and will happen in adults like Carolyn, will happen in people in this room is a type of change that is supernatural. It is bringing life spiritually from the dead. So in one real way, when I preach to unbelievers in a congregation, I'm preaching to a cemetery, a spiritual cemetery, wanting life to come back, come from the dead, and it is not me that can do that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus, as he has this conversation with Jesus, is confused and does not understand, and we find Jesus giving him an explanation as he goes to the Old Testament and then to some of the most famous, maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. Look with me at Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I want to read it again. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against Moses and against God. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food or nor water. That's not true. God was giving them food. God was giving them water. They called it worthless food. It's what sin does. We ignore and we are blind to the things that God has provided for us. Then the Lord sent a judgment. He sent fiery serpents to among the people, and they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we've sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that, the, they, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to, for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it in a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it 
shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he who would look at the bronze serpent that Moses had lifted up would live. Now turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I believe it'll be up on the screen. It's even better if you look at the back of your bulletin, which has the text on there, or your Bible. You can see it there. You can mark it up. You can go back to it later on. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And would you look with me at the very last verse of this chapter, verse 36. Jesus says, to, who, or it says here, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This morning, the point of my message is the main point of the entire Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16, John 3, 16 It's been called by Martin Luther, the Bible in miniature. And so this message, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is a type of summary of the great need, the great remedy, the great response, the necessary response for people if they are to live. It is the glory and the grace of God to sinful man found in this passage. And I want you to see this morning, all of you, faith church members and young people and teenagers to those that are maybe visiting and without a church or even without Christ yet. I want you to see, I pray and I long that God would help you to see Jesus Christ lifted up. And I want to say to you, if you're a non-Christian this morning, This message is for you. This message may offend you because it confronts your sin and tells you some unpleasant truths. My prayer is that the Spirit will convict you of these truths about yourself, about your condition, about your need, and a Savior, Jesus Christ, who offers Himself to you. My prayer, this message is something that we as a church must take to our work and to our schools 
and to our neighborhood. It is absolutely essential and fundamental. Dear Christian, if you're here this morning, and there are most of you, this is your story, this passage. This explains your hope. This is the light of your life. This is your story. This is your song. Gratitude must be a response. Renewed devotion and surrender to Him. Self-examination to say, have I really received this? Because we must devote our lives to this message that we're looking at this morning. Our church's life exists because the foundation of this central message of the Bible and your life exists for this purpose. And so I want to look at this passage and I want to look at it by looking at three things. I want you to see the plight of the world, meaning the devastating nature the world is in, it's perishing and it's condemned and it's under God's wrath. And number two, I want you to see the only remedy. The only remedy is the Son of God coming into the world, sent by God in love. And the required response is to look, to believe, to come to the light. Let's look at those in order. Number one, the plight of the world. That's a strange word, plight. We may not use it. I hope you understand what that means. The idea of plight means a condition that is unfortunate, difficult, and a precarious situation. It is a messed up situation. It's a crisis. And this passage, along with this book, explains to us what we should look around and see. This world is messed up. It is in a bad place. I don't know if you, I think most of you, excuse me, are familiar with the idea of dystopia. I wonder if you've watched or read books of dystopia. The Hunger Games are an example, or Ready Player One, or 1984, stories in which the future world is in a very terrible situation. It is dark and under bondage. There's usually a utilitarian government against them, and there is no hope in the world. You contrast that to the word from dystopia, which is a world that has fallen apart and devastated without any hope of repair. You have utopia, which means a perfect world. The plight of the world is clearly seen in this passage. It's seen as perishing. It's a reality that must be escaped. He says it in John chapter 3, verse 16. They shall not perish. They are listed in this passage as condemned who do not believe. This passage, John, in writing, and Jesus is speaking to Nit. Nicodemus would have us see, all of us see, that the condition that you and I face and have faced and we have around us, and if you have not found remedy to it, you are in a place that are, is perishing. That's an old term that means you are in the place of destruction. You are dying. You are not just dying physically, but you are in a place where you are dying and you will be punished forever. 
Because this passage says that you are condemned if you do not believe. That means that you have been declared guilty and under the shameful judgment and necessary and just judgment of a righteous and good God. And in verse 36, as I read, you are under the wrath of God, having not obeyed God and not obeyed His Son, Jesus. Every one of us knows there are things around us that, that, let me say it this way, every one of us quickly grows to know there are things that we ought to do, and yet we do not do them. And God's Word, this book, spells them out. No other worship than God alone, the first commandment. We are to love God with all our hearts. Who does that naturally? No, we go around loving ourselves, loving other things, putting our trust in in other possessions or people instead of God. Honor your father and your mother and all of the authorities God has established for us. And we go around and from our our childhood, we disobey and we honor, dishonor our parents. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain and you must use his name with purpose and value. You are marked by his name because he made you and yet we do not live according to that. You shall not lie or bear false witness. Instead, we continually, Christians and non-Christians alike, give white lies to cover up embarrassment We don't want to hurt people's feelings or we want to look good or escape discomfort. And so we lie, we cheat, we deceive. We are commanded not to kill and we might feel proud because we have never truly, literally committed murder. But we have hated other people. We have held grudges against other people. We have despised them. And Jesus says that is to commit murder in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. Which Jesus reminded us was not just the physical act of which people, Christians, are guilty of all the time. But of lusting in your heart. Speaking of lusting, we are commanded not to covet. We are to not desire what is not rightfully ours. Ours. And yet we do that all the time. We are discontent with the things that we have and we look around us and we wish we had what others had. There must be something broken within us. And there is. And it's sin. It devastates us. The plight of humanity is worse than we could ever see. And this book book from cover to cover tells us this. Sin brought Adam and Eve into shame. And they hid from God right away. And they were disassociated from God. And it brought so much problems. They started blaming each other. The first marital problems. They had children. And the very first boys that were born to Adam and Eve, the oldest kills the youngest out of envy. You might be here this morning and you may know that you're a sinner. So I tell you, do you take your sin seriously? And you might be here and you say, I don't think I am a sinner. My job in God's words is always to say, you are. 
Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. You might think, okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner. But I must tell you that your sin is worse than you think it is. If you knew how holy God is and how high his standard is and how if, if he is and he is just and righteous and holy and good and loving, he cannot just look over, overlook sin and ignore it. And it is a big problem. And this passage speaks of that. And as you scroll through this, you see perishing, condemned, under God's wrath, having gone to the darkness rather than light. And like Israel in Numbers 21, we are like the people of Israel. We come into this world like the people of Israel, having rebelled against God. And the Lord sends serpents among His people, and they bite them, and they are dying, and we are dying apart from God. Non-Christian, if it may seem like, it may not seem like it, but unless something changes... Your future is devastating and your situation is desperate. That is the message that I must, this Bible, this book must, we Christians must share with all the world that our condition is desperate if you have not turned to Christ. To disobey God is evil. To put yourself first is destructive. You, like everyone, feels, we all feel shame and guilt in certain ways. We seek a way to take care of it and to appease it in our own ways. And yet we are under the condemnation, the just declaration that we are guilty by God and we are, have on us the label of perishing. And this is not a bi- bad sci- apocalyptic sci-fi dystopia movie. This is real. And the hope of the world is not politics or elections. The hope of the world is the truths found in this passage and in the Bible. The mess of this world isn't bad policy, but rebellion against God. And it is under God's wrath and condemnation. And Christians, faith church, let us not forget the plight that you came from. Gage and Natalie and Carolyn and all those who've been baptized, let us never get over the fact that we were under the plight, the sin that was devastating, and Christ rescued us from, we were bitten by the snake and perishing. And yet something happened that should produce in us a gratitude and a seriousness and an urgency to take that message elsewhere. Christian friend, if we understand the plight we were in and we've been rescued out of, have we any reason to be self-righteous towards other people? No, not at all. Do we have any reason to be proud or arrogant? No, because we were rescued from it. We didn't earn it. Do we have a reason to be judgmental and look down on other people or to be envious of the wicked? No. Not only do we see in this passage what we see in all of the Bible, this passage of Bible in miniature, we also see that there is only one remedy. And the only remedy, I want you to see, the only remedy is found outside of man or woman, but in God who loved the world and sent his only son 
a Savior who will be lifted up on, who has been lifted up, but when this this was written, would be lifted up. Actually, when this was written, he was already lifted up because John's writing it. And by the time we get to verses 15 and at least verse 16, I think verse 16 is probably written by John, not spoken by Jesus, as John is now reflecting what Jesus has just said about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and he's saying, oh, but I want you to know, for God so loved the world that he gave, and oh, I saw it. I saw him hanging on a cross. And I'm writing it to you, church, so that you would believe. I'm writing it to the non-church that they would hear this story and believe. The only remedy for the plight of this world, for any of us, is that God so loved the world that he sent his son to be lifted on a cross, bringing eternal life to sinners. Is there anything more glorious than those words, for God so loved the world? They're so familiar that they're kind of, they could create yawns in us. I memorized it probably, one of the first verses I memorized as a little child. It, we, we see it placard in football stadiums and in Instagram profiles. Even non-Christians go, that's one verse I've heard of, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The only remedy is that God loved the world. The reason why we take and send people to Cameroon and to the Pacific Islands and to Portugal and to Brazil and to India and why, we would, why people like the Max would go and spend their lives far away from grandchildren and children is because God so loved the world and he sent his son. There is a remedy. He sent his His son, his one and only son. This son is not a son like you and I now might refer to ourselves as sons and daughters of God. This is the one and only son who is not just made new through the new birth a son, but he is the image of the invisible God. He is the second person of the Trinity, a mystery all of us can just only start to ponder. He not only is like God, he is God, and yet he is separate from God the Father, and yet there is only one God, even though they are both God. And Jesus came into the world, was born a man, though God the Father is not a man. God the Son is a man, and he became a man, and he remained fully God. He, the one and only Son, was sent in order to pay for sins So that preachers and Christians and moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and young teenagers can take this message and take it to someone else and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. This the only remedy is that God loved the world. How did he love the world? He gave his son. Romans 5.8, God showed his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his only son to die. He is a savior of the world. This passage makes that so clear. This passage says that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. And how is that? 
Well, Jesus is going to say that to Nicodemus. He's going to say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And he's thinking, okay, I remember this Old Testament story. God's people were rebellious. They were under the plight of, plight of a curse of sin. They were going to be destroyed. They cried out for mercy. God brought a provision. He had Moses make a bronze serpent, put it up on a staff. And he said, if anybody that's bitten by a snake looks up at that serpent, all they do is look at the serpent that I provided. And if they look at that serpent, they will live. And, and he says, so... He says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be lifted up. That term, be lifted up, is used elsewhere in the Gospel of John. is being lifted up on the cross to be glorified to the world to see that he is the only Son that came as a sacrifice for sin. And see, he says, the remedy is eternal life and for having received forgiveness. Romans 3 is going to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but God sent forth His Son and He put Himself forth as a satisfaction for our sin, an appeasement sacrifice so that the Father would actually be able to be just and righteousness he, so he wouldn't overlook sin. Sin would always be punished. And he could still show love and forgiveness and compassion. Whoever received the gift of the substitute. And it says that Jesus is the only remedy. Non-Christian friend, so glad you're here. The diagnosis, the diagnosis of your condition is devastating. You're under a plight of sin. But the cure is better than could be imagined. It is completely paid for. It is offered to you free. You must look to Jesus. He loved you so much that He gave His only Son, God the Father, that is. He gave His Son and He offers you salvation. And I'm a messenger here. The people of Faith Church, you are messengers to this world. You are to go to the people and say, I offer to you life. I offer to you a clean conscience, cleansing and forgiveness, eternal life. It's found in Jesus as you surrender to him and his kingdom. Please, if you're here this morning and if you've never done this, I plead with you. You can be saved right now in your seat. Please lift your eyes away from the world, away from yourself and look to Jesus. Do what Moses was told the Israelites are to do. Look up to the sun and see him. Doesn't say that you must be lifted up and pay for your sins, does it? But Christ was lifted up. Don't hide from the light as it shines on you. This passage says the light came into darkness and the darkness resisted it. Because you see, darkness and sin... When light comes, we just want to run. We don't want, we don't want our sin to be exposed. And that's what naturally will happen to every one of us until God comes in and says, enough, quit running. You can't outrun your sin. It's going to eventually expose you. Instead, turn to the light and see the life of God in Christ Jesus. 
the hope of America, the hope of the hope of this world, the hope of Linden and your community and your family and for your soul is found in the remedy of this passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you believe this? Christians, do you believe this? Do you remember that you have a savior? That he loves you? That God loves you? That he gave his son for you? And if he gave his son for you, will he withhold anything good from you? Why do you and I doubt his love so often? And we don't doubt him in the fact that we don't think he came and did this, but we doubt him in practical ways by not trusting that all that he's doing in your life is for your good and is seeking to bring you to an obedient place in all of your life. Friends, why do we go to the darkness still? Why do we fall back into unbelief? Let us look to the sun. Now, the last point I want you to see is the required response. The required response in this passage, and it's, you can trace it through this whole passage from verses 14 through 21, is to trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ the crucified and risen Lord and Savior of the world. And when I say trust, I'm going to use, the word that he uses is, he says, believes. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at verse 14, or verse 15. He says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Verse 36 at the end of this chapter, whoever believes in him has eternal life. That's a required response. Whoever believes in him. And where does this believing come from? Friend, there is believing and then there's believing. There is a type of believing that says, yeah, I, I grew up in church and I heard the Apostles' Creed and I kind of agree with that. I agree that Jesus must be God and he died on the cross. I know what happened at Christmas and Easter and all of those kinds of things. I've always believed those things ever since I was little. But it really hasn't made any difference in your life and you have no relationship with him. That's not the type of believing that he's talking about. To believe in him. To believe in him. In his name is to come to him trusting that he is the only savior of the world and that he, that you personally reach out to him, you escape from the darkness realizing that you've been running from him all your life and you open yourself up to him with empty hands knowing that you cannot do anything to earn your salvation or make yourself right before God, but you surrender to him and you receive him by faith. Verse 21 says something interesting. He says, when verse 20 says, everyone who does the wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And what I think this passage says to us is that those who have been saved, they have come to the light and they have received Christ. And it is clear that it was actually not them, but it was the works that of obeying and trusting in Christ was the work of God all along. They were carried out 
in God by his strength. Non-Christian, if you're here, this passage could not be more clear for you today. A non-Christian is a non-believer, but God invites you to live. God invites you to eternal life by believing in his son, by trusting in him, by believing in the name of the son of God, that Jesus is truly God. He is able to save you, that he died on the cross for your shame and for your sin and for your guilt. Your evil works got you into this plight, but your good works could never, ever get you out of it. But Jesus' work on the cross is your only hope. And it is truth and it is life to everyone who puts their trust in Christ. If you are a Christian here today, that is your testimony and your story. That's the story of the three that are being baptized today. They have all made it very clear to me that they did nothing in themselves that God, God looked at and said, therefore I, you've earned salvation. They realized it was Jesus that did it for them and they have believed in him. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again or believe on him. They, they cannot believe on him unless they have been born of God and with empty hands of faith, empty, and that we come not in our own merit, but we come receiving his work. You have a sheet inside your bulletin this morning that I encourage you to take and enjoy and be helped by your edification. In this, bullet, in this bulletin insert is labeled the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Some of you know who that is and some of you may not. He was one of the most famous preachers in the 1900s or the 1800s in England and America. Everyone had heard of him. He was a celebrity. He was the Billy Graham of his day. And he tells of his story of how he was searching and searching. And on a Sunday morning as a teenager, he had walked in a snowy, on a snowy day. He walked, he was searching at churches that would teach him to speak, speak the truth of how he could be saved. And he finally showed up at a primitive Methodist church and he walked into this church. And in this building, hardly anybody was there because it was so snowy, the pastor couldn't even make it. So one of the old deacons was there. This deacon had not prepared a sermon. He did not know how to publicly speak. And he took out a passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, and he just read it. And in this, he read the glorious words in Isaiah 45, 22. He read, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon tells the story, I was sitting here, I'm, I'm searching, I'm feeling guilty, I need help, I need somebody to save me. And he's sitting there, and this deacon, he says, his speech was, his, he described it, but this man was really stupid. He was obligated to stick to the text. He didn't do anything but stick to the text. And he started to speak to me. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It is, it says, look. Now looking don't take a deal, much deal of pains. It ain't even lifting up your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man doesn't need to go to college to look. A man doesn't need to make a thousand pounds a year to look. All it says is look. And it says, look to me. You can do that. Look to me. He says, then the good man, the preacher who wasn't a preacher followed his text and said, look unto me, and I am sweating 
Great drops of blood. Look at me, I'm hanging on a cross. Look at me, I'm dead and buried. Look at me, I rose again. Look unto me, and I ascended to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look to me, look to me. And when he had gone a length, he looked at me as only a few people were in there, and he knew I was a visitor, and he saw me, and he says, you look very miserable. And he said, I wasn't used to being pointed out in a service by my appearances. He says, if you don't obey this text, if you don't obey it now, this moment, but if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. And he describes sitting there in that chair. He said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else I said, but I took notice of this, that like the brazen serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, I must look to the sun and be saved. And I was And I praise God that all of you, if you've been saved, though that's not exactly your testimony, and you would never have explained it quite like that, God in his mercy showed you the Son and you looked, you beheld him and you saw him. Oh, that you would once again point people, let us all point people to this glorious gospel. God is a pardoning God. He shows mercy and grace to all who would receive him. I praise God for the phrase, whoever believes in him will not perish. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Is that you? Do you believe in him? Would you do that today? If you do, do you act like you believe that? I mean, if that happened, it changes things. The church needs to be filled with people that that happened to, and it makes all the difference in the world. They got a message to share with others. They have a message of gratitude in their lives, and it's the foundation of everything else. So may God help us as we end this message, as we go to the baptisms. May God help us to listen and to see and to believe this truth with all our heart that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to invite those to go get ready for baptism and I'm going to pray. Father, Oh, Father, thank you for loving me. Father, thank you for loving the worship team that will come up, that lead us in singing. Thank you for leading, loving the membership here that have that your special love upon them in Christ. God, thank you for loving the world. Thank you for loving those in this room who may have not yet received you, loving them so much that you have brought them to you and they've, you've drawn them to you. And you have offered to them this great and glorious message that Jesus came into the world to save us sinners. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to be, help us to not get over this message, but where we have got over it, we've moved on and we do not love you and love your salvation like we ought. Oh God, forgive us and God, would you restore us this love and I pray that we would love those around us Would you save those who are not saved? In Jesus' name, amen.